Welcome to the mikvah.org podcast. The mikvah organization has been dedicated to the education and resources for Jewish family life since 1975-5735. You can support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. Thank you for your support and enjoy today's recording. Welcome to the second episode of our three-part health and wellness series. Featuring Dr. Scott Chinoff, Chair of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Maimonides Medical Center, and Rabika Simov, the Rav of the Beisai Ra'a in Crown Heights. In this episode, we explore urogynecology and pelvic floor health. Let me get started then. So again, good evening, everyone. Um, in terms of the talks, whenever I give a medical talk, I always mention that I don't have any disclosures or anything that I need to mention. Um, and... Uh, I always like to preface with um, usually a case about something that happened to someone because I find that it's relatable for people to hear. But actually, I'm not going to start with a case for this because I can tell you that so many people suffer from these types of issues and it's such a common and prevalent issue that I think most people are capable of relating I could guarantee you that if men were experiencing loss of urine, they'd be taking care of it and be taking care of it awfully quickly. Okay. What's fascinating is how many women experience issues relating to pelvic floor problems and kind of accept it as just, that's just life for them. That's kind of what they expect to happen to them. And it's kind of fascinating when you think about that because many women experience issues when it comes to, to losing urine. Um, and of the percentage of women in the, in the overall world who experience these issues, the number of women who actually seek help for it is really a very, very small minority of them. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that many people are either unaware of the fact that it is something which can be dealt with, and B, it is something that probably should be dealt with. And to just give you the scope of the problem, the number one cause for elderly people to be admitted to an assisted living facility is related to incontinence. Number one, the number one reason for it, because many, what typically happens, what's a not uncommon occurrence, is that somebody tries to get up in the middle of the night to run to the bathroom, and they trip, they fall, they break something, and they end up losing their independence as a result of that. What's even more fascinating is how many young women have the exact same problem. How many young women, including teenagers, have issues relating to these types of problems? As a matter of fact, many women who may be involved in sports or other athletics this is actually something which is extremely common, and there's actually an entire center just for dancers because of how common these types of issues exist amongst dancers. These are really, really common problems. I'm not going to focus tremendously on the pain with relations component of it, but that all falls within this concept of, of pelvic floor health. Um, and the reason why we bring, I'm bringing all these things up here today is because this is one of the centers that... that I've built since I've been here at Maimonides. For those who don't know, many of you have been here before and you heard the introduction. I'm currently the chairman over at Maimonides for the Department of OBGYN and Women's Health. And one of the things that I have noticed um, in my career so far has been that there is not enough of a focus on women's health issues. Uh, and I understand. Partially it's because of the fact that women are busy. You're taking care of families. Frequently, you're taking care of, you have jobs. You may be taking care of parents or other family members as well. And generally, what ends up happening is women tend to get relegated to second when it comes to taking care of themselves. And it's unfortunate because there are so many issues and problems that arise that if people were to take care of it and take care of it earlier, they would have much less problems later on in life. So... Let's talk a little bit about incontinence. And incontinence is something, like I said, is something which is really, really common. It's something that happens 
to many women. And I didn't ask the question on here, but I would imagine that many people in this room have children. Many people might have quite a few children. And what happens when you have children frequently is that the muscles that are in the pelvic floor can get damaged and weakened as a result of childbirth, which means that issues relating to incontinence and other pelvic floor problems actually happen in a higher frequency within the Froome community just by the nature of who we are and the amount of children that, that the women in the community have. And it can be quite embarrassing. I actually have, um, I have a, someone I know uh, who teaches a Zumba class and for, for a Froome woman in Muncie. And she talks about how after the class, how there are puddles um, under many women um, because of the fact that they actually will have incontinence while they are exercising. And I want to stress the fact that that's not necessarily people who are older. That is also younger people because these are issues that impact women at any age. So let's talk a little bit about what is incontinence and the different types of incontinence because there really are two main types of incontinence. The two main types of incontinence are stress incontinence. And stress incontinence is when someone will leak urine when there is some sort of stress placed on them. So that could be coughing, sneezing, walking upstairs, lifting, dancing, um, picking your, your kid up. Anything that involves some sort of physical exertion and particularly any physical exertion that makes you tighten your abdominal muscles because what that does is it puts pressure on the pelvic floor. Your bladder is sitting on top of muscles. And I'll show you a little video in a second so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. And anything, when those muscles get damaged or injured, it doesn't pro properly hold the bladder. And that can lead to issues relating to incontinence. Urge incontinence um, is when you leak urine, you'll suddenly feel an urge. I have to go and I just can't make it in time. There's just this overwhelming urge to go to the bathroom and you know no matter what I just can't make it in time there are two others that are that are a little bit less common but they do happen uh, overflow incontinence tends to be in cases um, when people may have some other neurological issues that are going on where the bladder is not capable of fully emptying or if there's something which is blocking the urine from properly being able to get out and then it just leaks over and then total incontinence is when your bladder can't store any urine at all. This is a very uncommon type of situation, but it does happen for some women where literally as soon as urine hits the bladder, they're unable to hold it whatsoever. So how do we figure out what type of incontinence somebody has? Well, there's really actually a very simple questionnaire that we use that can help us define whether or not somebody has an issue, right? So the first question is, has anyone ever leaked urine? in the past few months. Obviously, I did not ask that question for everyone this evening. I thought about actually doing the poll with, with this, but I figured, well, we'll, well, suffice it to say, I think enough people in here have expressed that they have had issues. Um, then, did you, during the last three months, did you leak any urine? And if so, doing what? Was it during physical activity? Was it when you had the urge? Or was it just without any feeling sense whatsoever and you leaked urine just sitting there? Um, I will tell you that last one of just suddenly losing urine without realizing it is something that we see more commonly uh, for women after they've had a baby. Uh, it's sometimes women are just like, I don't know what happened. I was just sitting there and then I didn't even feel like I needed to go. And then I just lost urine. And that happens primarily because of the um, damage that happens to the nerves in the pelvic area when the baby comes out and it causes stretching, and that can cause that type of thing. For many women who do experience that, and especially in the immediate postpartum period, um, that is something which generally does improve over time, but it's not guaranteed that it will. Um, and then when did, you do, when did you leak most often? And by using this simple questionnaire, we're able to start to get an idea. This is what we use as physicians to start to get an idea of what actually is going on. So what essentially is happening is and it's, it's hard to, to fully appreciate it from here. I'm sorry, I don't have a, a pointer, but I'll, I'll stand over here to, to maybe better describe what's going on. This over here is the pelvic floor. It's imagine somebody who's cut in half like this, and we're looking at from the inside out. And what we see over here, this is the bladder that's over here. 
And this is the uterus and the vagina over here. And this is the rectum, which is over here. And what you could see is the bladder sits on top of the, the lower part of the uterus and the vagina over here. And the urethra then runs down next to the vagina there. So you could imagine, so think of it like this, right? When a baby is being born, it's passing right through here. And to keep it in perspective, you will, anyone who has seen a baby, which I imagine everyone has, imagine the size of the baby passing through and the amount of stretching which needs to take place next to all of the things that are there. And you could see over here, here's, this is the urethra over here that runs up to the bladder over here. And these muscles over here are what helps to support it. And it's those muscles which can get damaged when someone is having childbirth. But it's not just childbirth. It can happen from a variety of other things as well that can cause that. Um, being overweight can also increase the amount of pressure that's over there. But there's a whole variety of things which can ultimately result in damage to that. And like I mentioned, people who are engaged in tremendous amounts of exercise People who have really, really strong abdominal muscles can sometimes as well cause that increase in pressure that can cause problems with the muscles, which can lead to stress incontinence. In terms of urge incontinence, um, things that can cause it are things like drinking too much alcohol or not drinking enough fluids. And when you're dehydrated, what happens is the urine gets very concentrated. And that concentrated urine can become an irritant to the bladder itself and can cause you to feel this urge, even though you may not have that much urine in there. Constipation is another major problem that causes issues with, with incontinence. Um, it's something we don't even think about, but if you think about that picture I showed you before, where the rectum sits right below the bladder, as that increases in size, if it's stuck because stool is not able to get out, what can end up happening is it can cause incontinence too. Um, and then other conditions, infections, neurologic conditions, and there's a whole slew of medications that people could be taking. And again, it, I put this up there not to show it for the purposes of individual medications, but as much as to show you how many medications, and these are just classes of medications, can cause problems for incontinence. So there's a whole slew of reasons why somebody could potentially be experiencing incontinence. And there's a lot of treatments which are available. And this is really what I want to point out to people. You know, like I said from the beginning, unfortunately, many times people feel that this is just something they have to deal with, they have to bear. This is what it means to be a woman. We lose urine. You know, and it's funny, if you think about it, how many types of products women use in order to protect themselves and the cost and how much that costs every year it's estimated that just using protective products because of loss of urine in the United States alone is over a billion dollars in a year. Think about that. A billion dollars. That's a crazy amount of money just to be used for products to help protect women who are experiencing incontinence. And again, one of the challenges that we have is that many women are used to getting periods. And so they're used to the idea. They kind of just like, all right, well, I'll just wear a pad. Right? This is why it's so important that people become aware of these issues and what's available to them. And so some of the things that you could do is just lifestyle changes, losing weight, cutting down on caffeine and alcohol. Those are some of the first things that we recommend to people. Pelvic floor exercises. This I cannot stress enough. And I'm going to stress it more primarily because also my wife happens to be a pelvic floor physical therapist. And if I don't stress it, she's going to come and say to me, how come you didn't stress it? Um, but, it, but the truth of the matter is that doing pelvic floor exercises is something that needs to happen at a younger age and needs to continue throughout your entire life. Um, bladder training are other things that could be done. There are medications which are available that can help for certain types of incontinence. There are surgical treatments for stress incontinence, such as slings and various other procedures which are available. Um, and there are surgeries as well to treat uh, urge incontinence, which could include things like enlarging the bladder or implanting a device that can help to stimulate the nerves that control the muscle itself. So there's a lot of treatments that are out there, and there are more treatments that keep coming out. So what are some of the things you could do in terms of preventing urinary incontinence? So maintaining a healthy weight, like I mentioned, changing your drinking habits so that the, I don't think we have to worry about people in here in general drinking too much alcohol, but honestly, 
even a small amount of alcohol can make a big difference. Um, but definitely caffeine is a major, major culprit. And I don't know about anybody else in here. I can only speak for myself. I drink a lot of caffeine. Um, and this is something which frequently is a, is a major problem. And doing these pelvic floor muscle exercises is something which also is, is so, so important to, to really set yourself up for your, for your whole life in order to prevent these things from happening. You know, I, something simple, like for urgent continence, you know, we have entire regimens that we're capable of doing to help people retrain their bladder because one of the problems with urgent continence is people essentially learn to run to the bathroom, right? Um, you know, I don't know if anyone has said this to your kids, go when you can, not when you have to, right? We tell them like, you know, we're by the bathroom now. I don't want to hear when we're in the car that you need to go to the bathroom. I don't know if maybe this is just me, but uh, I know that, that, that we've said this before to my, to my children many times. Um, and while that is an appropriate thing to do, unfortunately, sometimes that creates a learned response for people um, that they are going to the bathroom when they don't need to go to the bathroom. And as a result of that, we literally are teaching our bladders to, do, to not work properly. So there's a lot of things that can be done in terms of bladder training um, and things that can be done in order to help people who are experiencing these symptoms. So let me shift for a second. I'm going to pivot for a moment um, to talk about another major area um, relating to pelvic organ prolapse. And by the way, I'll discuss some of the things that we have in terms of programs afterwards also about what's available to help with many of, of these things and what types of, of resources we have available for you. Um, in pelvic organ prolapse, what happens is similar to with incontinence, um, the muscles become weak that's in the pelvic floor. And when those muscles become weak, it's possible for the organs that it's supporting to fall down. So there's different types of prolapse that can happen. You can have the bladder falling down. That's called the cystocele. You can have the rectum falling down. That's called a rectocele. You could have the whole uterus falling down. Um, that's called uterine prolapse. And you could have your intestines actually coming out from by the top of the vagina called an enterocele. Um, and then people who, who have had hysterectomies can actually get what's known as vaginal vault prolapse, where the vagina itself is actually falling out because there are no organs that are behind it. There's no uterus or cervix behind them. Um, and again, the same things that happen with incontinence, the same types of trauma and things that happen there um, are things that can also increase the risk for developing pelvic organ prolapse. And frequently, they'll feel a heaviness around the lower urine, the lower tummy and the genitals, sort of a dragging discomfort inside the vagina, feeling like there's something coming down into your vagina. Um, it may almost feel like you're sitting on a small ball uh, or feeling or even seeing a, a bulge or a lump coming out of the vagina, discomfort or numbness during relations and problems going to the bathroom. Sometimes people who have prolapse actually have difficulty urinating properly because it actually kinks the, the, the urethra. And if you think about it, imagine like a garden hose. And if you take the hose and go like that to it, what happens? No water can come out of it, right? So the same thing can happen with, the, with pelvic organ prolapse. It can cause a variety of issues and problems relating both to urination and can cause a lot of issues um, with, uh, with constipation and bowel movements as well. Some people will actually experience rectal incontinence where they may pass flatus, um, just passing gas, not realizing that it, or even losing stool uh, in some significant cases. And again, it's not uncommon for people, there are certain times when we do see this more commonly. In the immediate postpartum period, we may see some of these things, and particularly for women who may have torn during the course of the delivery, you may see these things as well. Um, but this is something which can obviously uh, create a lot of issues for people in the long term. And so what are some of the causes? I mentioned childbirth as being one of the more common ones, especially if you had a particularly long or difficult labor, um, or if you have a particularly large baby that was born. Um, uh, as you get older, and as you get older, all of the muscles in our body and the ligaments in our body get weaker. And that can also lead to, to problems with that. Being overweight 
um, having constipation because when you're constipated, you're constantly putting pressure on those muscles. And over time, that can weaken it. Um, having had a hysterectomy, a job that requires a lot of heavy lifting, um, and other types of medical conditions are also some of the things which could be causes for pelvic organ prolapse. So these are some of the things that, that, uh, that we do see um, with pelvic organ prolapse. And there are a lot of treatments which are available too. There are some which are lifestyle treatments. And then there's a whole variety of other things too, similar to the incontinence stuff, whether it be exercises, there are some hormone treatments which can be effective. Um, there's what's called a pessary. And a pessary essentially is a device that we put into the vagina uh, to basically hold everything up. Imagine like a splint. Um, and uh, then obviously there is also surgery, which can be used as well to correct many of these uh, circumstances and conditions. And I'm going to get quickly through to the last topic here in terms of pain with relations. Um, pain with relations is something which I have to tell you is something which um, I see a significant amount of. I once did a study um, amongst uh, from couples from a variety of backgrounds. I had a hundred from couples um, of different ages, different backgrounds. And I asked them, how long did it take for you to consummate your marriage when you first got married? Three months was the average time that it took for the, for, for the average couple to be able to consummate. And in that one study, the longest was seven months. Okay. I will tell you a case of a patient who came to see me. They had been married for almost two and a half years, and they came to see me because they had already gone to Bayesden, because they were ready to get divorced, because they were unable to consummate their marriage. And what's remarkable is the issue that this woman had was something, and it was an issue related to something going on in her pelvic floor, was something that I was able to fix within about a month and a half. And I actually had the zechus of actually delivering her baby that she had uh, later that year after we were able to fix the problem. And the problem with these issues are that people are extremely embarrassed. All of these issues that I'm talking about today are issues that people are frequently very embarrassed to talk about. People don't like talking about these issues. Listen, people don't want to talk about pain with relations, but rightfully so. There's a certain thing, there's a certain aspect of sneers here that we don't just go around talking about these things. At. But what people need to understand is how common these things are. I can tell you that today I was seeing patients in my office, and I had four patients who came in primarily just for this type of an issue, just for this. Okay. So this is something which happens to, it impacts a lot of people, it affects a lot of people. There's a lot of reasons why this can happen. There's a whole slew of common conditions that are associated with it. There is a variety of gynecological conditions like endometriosis or fibroids or adenomyosis, cysts, um, pelvic inflammatory disease, as well as some more serious things like cancers. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that could be going on with the bladder. There's some things called um, interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome. Um, there's a variety of things that can be happening in the GI tract. Uh, people who have inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, things of that nature, ulcerative colitis. Some people have musculoskeletal problems that are causing them to have problems, and some could be neurological or even vascular. As a matter of fact, I ended up diagnosing a patient once with MS because she presented primarily with a problem with pain with relations and we were able to identify that she actually had an ms uh at the time um very rare don't everyone think if you have pain that you have ms please i'm not trying to send that message to people um and there's a lot of there's a lot of causes for why it can happen and it, we look at it from a variety of ways as to where that pain is and when the pain is occurring um that can help us identify what might be the source of the pain. Um, sometimes it's superficial, meaning it's towards the outside. Sometimes it's deeper inside that the pain is felt. It could be in other locations as well. And another thing which I want to point out and say is that it is not uncommon for people who have had some sort of psychosocial trauma um, to be experiencing pain. And psychosocial trauma could come from a whole variety of different things that happened to them at any point in their life. 
that can be anything from somebody making a, a comment to them, whether it be related to body image or whether it be related to their overall um, sexuality, um, or to actually at the furthest end on the other side of the spectrum, actual abuse, rape, or molestation. Um, and again, it happens. And I, I wish I could say it doesn't happen in our communities, but, but it does. Um, and the impact that it has on people is far, far lasting. And it is something which I've seen, unfortunately, too many times. Um, and can commonly be a cause for many of these types of problems. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other issues that could be related to the pain. It could be things related to decreased lubrication, which can happen with hormone changes. It can happen particularly as you age in menopause. Um, it can happen because of surgery. Uh, and also there could be issues just related to constriction of the actual outside of the vagina itself, which can happen from a whole variety of things too and various conditions. So as I said, I, 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 I'm, I'm gonna stop here in terms of talking about that stuff. One of the things that, and again, because of how common these issues are and because of the fact that of, of how many people suffer from these things, part of what I did in, in, since I've been at Maimonides is trying to build programs specifically to help for these things. So the types of doctors commonly that you would want to be seeing for many of these things, you might wanna see a urogynecologist who specializes specifically in these types of issues for women. There are urologists, female urologists, who special in, specialize in female urology. And then there are also gynecologists and gynecologic surgeons who specialize in a variety of these types of conditions. We actually have an interesting program we built at Maimonides called the Pearl Program, which is focused on women who are postpartum and are having issues because one of the things that we strongly believe is that the earlier the interventions we do, the reduction in the potential trauma later on in life that they can have because of that. Um, so let me pause. I wanna take a moment for questions and make sure that I give everybody adequate time to ask any questions that people may have. What, what I'll also tell you while you're, while you're taking a moment to write questions down, and I think which is very pertinent, uh, especially uh, the fact that we're lucky to have the rub here, um, pertains to issues relating to, first of all, with prolapse, it's very common for people to be experiencing spotting issues as a result of prolapse. And that tends to be related to the fact that the, as the pelvic organs descend and come down, they actually can scrape. And you actually get micro traumas there, which can cause a whole slew of issues relating to, uh, to spotting and, and bleeding issues. Um, you know, and then there's obviously the obvious issues relating with pelvic pain components and how that impacts in relations um, you know, which I think are, are, are something which is obviously uh, a, a, big, a big concern for, for many couples. You know, it's, it's interesting, as I told you, that my, my wife's a pelvic floor physical therapist, and uh, she got into it. She actually started in pediatrics. She was taking care of kids first. And I tried for years convincing her that I thought pelvic floor physical therapy is an important thing to do. And she said to me, I don't know what this pelvic floor physical therapy thing is. Now, granted, I'm going back about 20 years at this point. And, uh, and, it was, and it's actually pretty funny. We, she, was, she was like, I don't know what this is. I don't know why I would ever do this. And one time she came with me to a, to a medical conference. And she met a pelvic floor physical therapist there. And we're flying back from the conference. And she goes, you know, I think I want to become a pelvic floor physical therapist. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Um, but but they, are, they are another major part of the treatment team that we use in dealing with a lot of these issues. So the urogynecologist, the gynecologist, the pelvic floor physical therapist, but other people who are integrated in the team are neurologists frequently because there could be neurological issues. Um, we might also have, we have uh, social workers uh, as well as, uh, um, as, well as uh, frequently psychiatrists um, because it's also not uncommon. Some of the difficulties that we have is, you know, what we've learned is sometimes we recommend treatments and it's not so easy to follow through. Like if we say to you, you need to go to the bathroom every hour on the hour and you happen to be a teacher. Well, most teachers, especially if you're teaching younger age kids, don't necessarily have access to be able to go every hour on the hour to the bathroom. And so being able to create treatment strategies that work for everybody is really, is really critical.
So this question starts off for the Rov. Any halachic issues with going to a gynecologist and pelvic floor physical therapist before marriage to assess and try to better prepare for marriage? So this is a very good question. The halach is that there is no problem. The only thing that may be a shayla is if they're going to, for whatever reason, affect the basulam, the hymen. So then at that point, if that is a concern, it's not going to happen on the spot, right? You would usually know in advance, so sometimes you have no choice. Sometimes there's a serious issue that needs to be dealt with. So at that point, this is something that you should be consulting with the Rav with. And uh, when it comes time for the chasna, it is something to disclose to the Rav. And uh, it would depend if there's any basulam, if there's any hymen which is left. It's something to, that uh, is important information, so make sure to ask the doctor. If it's just a regular checkup to see whatever it is, there's absolutely no problem. How do I know if my symptoms are psychosomatic, in which case therapy is a solution, or if it's physical? I'll tell you, the first step is, is go and get evaluated. Um, I always tell people that if you think you may have a problem, then go to your doctor and see. You know, your regular OBGYN should be able to do an initial evaluation and assessment to determine whether or not there's an issue or problem. But if for some reason you feel that that assessment's not adequate or you may be more concerned about something, then like I said, it's worthwhile to then go see a specialist who can actually do a more advanced evaluation in those circumstances to determine whether there is or isn't a problem. They'll let you know whether there's a physical problem there or not. And if there's no physical problem, they will also make the recommendations if they think that there is something psychosocial going on uh, there. I'm assuming we're talking about incontinence, but I'm not sure we could also be talking about pain in this case. Um, and again, similarly, the first step always is to make sure there isn't something medical, right? There could be an infection, there could be a variety of things that could be going on. So the first step is you do that. And then if you, if you have concerns that you think that it may be a psychosocial issue, don't be afraid to address it with your doctor, right? Um, I could tell you for myself, I, every patient, I take a history about psychosocial concerns and history relating to potential that uh, causes for problems. Um, not every doctor does that routinely, um, but if you think you do have a concern related to that, bring, bring it up with your doctor. What is a lot of caffeine? How much is a lot? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it depends on how bad your problems and symptoms are. If, uh, <coughs> if you're having pretty significant symptoms, then, then zero is the right amount. Um, as a general rule, more than one cup of coffee a day starts to, can start to become a bladder irritant. Uh, and for many women, even one cup can be in that bladder. And many people, it's not a problem at all. What I always recommend, if, especially if you're someone who really, you just can't um, live without your caffeine, and if you're like me and drink quite a bit of it, um, at a minimum, you should be drinking a lot of water with it, which goes against what everybody thinks because people think, oh no, then I'm gonna be running to the bathroom all the time, so then I don't drink water. And then what ends up happening is you just exacerbate your symptoms because you don't dilute the urine and you just keep irritating the bladder. Any recommendations for women in labor who suffer from pain with relations? And anything to help prepare them better or actual recommendations for actual labor? I guess they're worried if they have pain with relations, will it, will it cause problems during pain during labor? Here's what it comes down to. Labor hurts no matter what. Uh, there's no if, ands, or buts about that. It, it's painful. Um, the fact that someone suffers from pelvic pain in advance does not necessarily mean that they will have more or worse pain at the time of delivery. Um, however, I want to dispel a myth. There's a myth that, oh, once you have the baby, the pain will get better afterwards because everything will get stretched out and so on and so forth. That is a myth, okay? People who have pain beforehand are most likely going to continue to have pain afterwards. Um, but like I said, some, in some cases, depending on what the cause of the pain is, there may be a, a physical issue and that may be something that could cause worsening pain during delivery. Um, I actually am a fan of people having perineal massage uh, during uh, the preterm, uh, during the prenatal period, which can help to actually help relax the muscles and make it a little bit easier at the time um, of uh, delivery. Are there any pelvic floor exercises recommended during and after pregnancy for every woman? Well, 
I'm a believer in the fact that Kegel exercises, and I don't know if people know what a Kegel exercise is or the proper way to do it, but I'll give you a very basic instruction on a Kegel exercise. Kegel exercise is what you do by tightening your muscles in your pelvic floor as if you're trying to stop your urine from coming out. So imagine right now you're stopping both urine and stool. You're tightening those pelvic floor muscles, um, and the key is you tighten them, you hold it for approximately 10 seconds and you release and you repeat that about 10 times. Um, and people should be doing that probably two to three times a day if you're really working on trying to strengthen those muscles. And don't do it when you need to go to the bathroom. Yes. You do it when you have an empty bladder. <laughs> what are some recommendations for rectal bladder uterine prolapse for spinal cord injury patient? Do pelvic floor exercises help or is surgery only option? Is exercise worth exploring? Um, I will tell you that it depends on the particular condition and what's going on. Unfortunately, that's very specific and it would really depend on what type of spinal cord injury you're dealing with, what type of uh, prolapse, and if there are other things going on as well. Uh, so for example, sometimes people with spinal cord injuries may be in particular positions that are that are not related to the spinal cord injury, but are like either very hunched over in some way um, that can subsequently cause them to have issues. So that's something which you ultimately need to be evaluated for. However, just because someone had a spinal cord injury does not mean that they are not eligible for pelvic floor exercises and the ability potentially for that to help them. Leaking without strain. Do you see a correlation to it with women who push their babies out with urinary catheter in place? Uh, no, um, but as a general rule, we do recommend removing the urinary catheter prior to actually delivering the baby. What to do for a 21-year-old girl who's been through severe sexual abuse and now has pain, yeast from childhood, and, a feeling, and feeling a bulge in, in vagina, probably a prolapsed uterus, but she's too scared to go to the doctor because of trauma. How dangerous is it not to go to a doctor because of what she's been through? I will say that in that circumstance, that that person would need to be seeing a therapist. They need to see a professional and they should be undergoing professional therapy because it sounds like somebody who really is suffering and in many cases we're not able to get to dealing with the physical issues until we deal with the psychological issues. And so frequently that's where we start from. Somebody has to feel comfortable enough to be able to come for an exam. But the other thing is also Many, many physicians are trained in dealing with people who have had a history of trauma. There are certain doctors who have special training specifically in that, gynecologists who have special training in that. Um, and so people can actually go in and seek out that, those types of individuals. We actually do have some people in our office that have special training uh, specifically for that. After which age would you say pelvic floor exercises won't help someone? 120. <laughs> Well, they say the younger the better, so. It helps at literally every age. It's no different than any exercise, right? You're just like also when you're younger, it's easier to build muscle than it is as you get older. Pelvic floor exercises are beneficial for people at any age of, of life. Can pelvic floor exercises help for pain during relations and any other things that can help? Uh, it depends on what the source of the pain is. Yes, sometimes pelvic floor exercises can be helpful. As a matter of fact, uh, I frequently recommend pelvic floor physical therapy, not just because my wife is one, but because it's actually really helpful for those types of things. Um, because there's a variety of exercises that could be done depending on the condition uh, that can help to relax the muscles. Sometimes the goal is not to strengthen the muscles, but to teach you how to relax the muscles. And so there's a variety of different techniques that can be done to help you learn how to better relax those muscles. The first recommendation you'll always hear from everybody, well, I'll, I'll tell you something which I did not say in my bio, which, I, which people may or may not know. Um, I happen to actually be a certified sex therapist from ASECT, um, and I spent a lot of time at one point in my career dealing with a lot of things relating to sexual dysfunction. And so you may say to yourself, well, how did a nice Jewish boy become an OBGYN and a sex therapist? That's for a different story, but how I got to become a sex therapist in particular was because I was an OBGYN, a fourth year resident, and I was in the clinic seeing a patient, and while I was seeing this patient, she had had a baby about six months earlier, was there for a regular exam. I was there 
we were doing our visit, everything is going just dandy, and I am walking out of the room, I have my hand on the door, I'm turning the handle, and she says to me, oh, I have one more question for you, doctor, which is known as the question of death for every doctor, because that is the primary reason why the person came there usually, and you're already ready to go to the 15 other patients that are waiting for you. And so I was like, oh, what's going on? And she said, well, you know, since I had the baby, we really haven't been able to have relations. I'm having a lot of discomfort and pain. And I looked at her and I had absolutely no idea what to answer her because my training did not include anything relating to that. And I was like, oh, well, I think you just need to use a lot of lubricant. And then I literally ran out the door. And I went to my preceptor at the time and said, I didn't know what I was supposed to say. And she's like, oh, you were fine. You know, that, and it did not feel fine to me. And I started doing some investigation of my own, trying to get some education, and I ended up getting uh, involved with an organization where I ended up subsequently getting trained myself uh, on, on being a, a therapist. Not that I actively practice that, but it has been helpful for me in my career in helping women. Some of the things, so lubricant obviously is one of those things that can be very helpful. Another thing which can be very helpful is appropriate positioning. Um, I think that a lot of times people don't fully appreciate um, what the direction is of the pelvic organs. Um, the vagina itself does, so if a woman is lying flat and the vagina does not go straight back like this towards the head, it actually heads at a 45 degree angle down to the back of the patient. So this is the direction of it, not this way. Now, many people are confused by that and what they do when they're trying to have uh, relations is they're trying to get in and like this. And what's sitting over there is the bladder. Well, I don't know if anyone here has ever had a urinary tract infection, but I would imagine that if you're getting poked in your bladder, that is something which can be very uncomfortable. So certain things relating to positioning can be very helpful. Things like propping up someone's behind on a pillow can help to change the angle of the pelvis and make it a little bit easier. Um, those are things that are helpful. Another thing which is helpful frequently is ensuring that somebody is adequately excited and stimulated before attempting penetration. You know, another thing that people don't realize is that just like a man's uh, will change shape when he gets excited, the same thing happens actually to the, to the woman and to the vagina as well. And it actually gets larger in preparation for penetration to occur. So if a woman is not adequately aroused before attempting penetration, that can also be very painful for them too. Those are some very quick tips, but there's a lot of stuff which could potentially be done. Go to a physical therapist is not always covered by insurance and it could cost $400 a visit. Is there a way to get the exercises from someone else or a different option? First of all, there are online things where you can get exercises. There's actually some apps that are out there um, I could tell you that we actually have a pelvic floor physical therapist in our center, which is covered by insurance. Um, and we take pretty much every insurance that's out there. Um, there are more and more pelvic floor physical therapists that are starting to take insurance. Um, and so there are, but it is, but the reality is that the majority of them are um, cash pay only, and it can be prohibitive for many people to get access. But that is one of the reasons why we put in public floor physical therapy in our center was to give people who need insurance. I'm just going to put in a plug in for mikvah.org. If you go on mikvah.org forward slash referrals, there is a list for pelvic floor therapists. Many of them are cash only, like Dr. Chanoff said. Many of them, a lot, not a lot, there's quite several of them that are covered by insurance now, including the ODA in Williamsburg and a place in, in Manhattan, several places you could check it. You'll have to call them each up. Um, when you do your research or when you're evaluating yourself, I mean, I'm repeating some things he said, some physical therapists are great for like just treatment, but if a lot of your stuff is, a lot of the woman's issues are not coming just from physical pain because something's off on the pelvic floor or something like that, but it's coming from trauma or childhood stuff or relationships or connection, you really need a good physical therapist that doesn't just specialize in the physical part. They need the inner dimension of the physical therapy. It's a, they're two different types of, they're physically doing the same thing, but the connection and know how to treat is very different. So you really need to know yourself or the therapist hopefully will be able to help you or the doctor, whoever's going to evaluate you. But 
you, you have to do your own research and a lot of introspection of what you really need. And also about the payment thing too, most insurers you can submit the bills, you won't necessarily get the full payment back, um, but most insurances will pay at least a portion of the bill. So if you, even if you are seeing someone who is a private pay, um, make sure to get a bill from the, from the provider and then submit it to your insurance company. Is there a way to stop the incontinence? Yes, <laughs> um, there actually is. Depending on what type of incontinence, yes, there is. There's a lot of treatments that are out there, um, but it does start with going to see probably a urogynecologist is usually the best person to start with if you have significant incontinence. Um, or you can see a gynecological surgeon who specializes in, in, uh, in, in those matters. But yes, there is a lot of things that can be done for incontinence. If symptoms are because of a psychosomatic issue, how do you treat that? You treat it based on the underlying problem, and which involves usually some levels of counseling and therapy. Um, and it could include both psychological counseling, but it also physical therapy in combination. Uh, can work for many of those things. My mother always told me that the Rambam says not to hold in urine or stool for even a minute. Well, if we were to go to the bathroom every minute, I mean, I could speak to the Rav, but uh, it'd be kind of hard to do anything uh, if, you're, if you're going to the bathroom every minute, but I won't. I no, not every minute. You shouldn't hold yourself in for even one minute. As soon as you need it, go to the bathroom. Well, I could tell you from a medical perspective, um, that's not a... I honestly don't think that was the intent of the Rambam, and I'll I will let the, the Rav speak to that effect. But, uh, but as a general, from a pure medical perspective, the idea of every time as soon as you feel an urge to run to the bathroom is, is not a, a good way to approach it. Or the body's changed. Students like saying it about their teachers. The Rambam says, you're not allowed to let me hold it in. I have to go to the bathroom right now. Whoever's a teacher has heard that. I'm not, as I always say, I'm not a Rav. I'm not here. That's why we have Rav. But I can only tell you the medical. At the six-week postpartum visit, they check you. And if they tell you you're good to go, does that mean they checked and did not see any prolapse? Um, it depends on what they did at that visit. Sometimes they may check for prolapse. Sometimes they don't. Many times they don't even do a pelvic exam at the <laughs> six-week visit because many times you don't necessarily need one, um, especially if you don't have any complaints related to that. But yes, uh, it is not uncommon for people to check for prolapse and things like that at the six-week visit. But sometimes six weeks is too early to see because your body may not be fully healed by that point as well. And that's the end of the questions that I have. But before we close, does the Rav have any closing remarks? First of all, thank you to Mikvalanorg, thank you to the doctor. These are very, very important classes because, first of all, for whatever reason, many things can get uh, thrown under the rug and they're not spoken about, as was mentioned in the presentation. And the reality is, from experience, when people put it under the rug, so a year goes by, another year goes by, then all of a sudden it explodes. So it's very important to take care of the, any issues that could be, because first of all, it can affect your day-to-day -day life in your marriage. If things are not well, with your health, it affects the way that the, the house is uh, being taken care of, the relationship between husband and wife. So Alpitaira, first of all, a person is obligated to take care of their body. And as the doctor mentioned, for, for some reason, potentially men would take, thing, uh, take care of themselves much faster. If they have a headache, it's already, I can't go to work. But for some reason, um, by woman, I can speak from experience as well, that uh, you, know, you live with it and you, and, you, and you move on. So it's very important, this is not the right thing to do. You have to take care of it. Also, because it does affect your ability to count the Shivnikim, there was mentioned a condition called prolapse. Many, many things could actually cause difficulties to Pashat count the Shivnikim. And I've had it many, many times that a person has been dropping off Shilas for a long time and something looks off. It doesn't look like regular uh, what would be coming from the uterus. So I say, maybe see the Bedakis. They see the Bedakis and they, found, they find that they do have a medical condition. And for years and years and years, the mikveh was delayed for no reason. There were things that were able to be done. So first of all, this can affect Pruravu. This can affect Shalom Bayis. This can affect so many things that don't, we don't even realize. So it's very important. Baruch Hashem, thank you very much for such a wonderful presentation. Anything beyond the presentation, do not hesitate. Do take care of it. First of all, it's a mitzvah. You have to take care of your body. You have to take care of your health. You must be healthy. And second of all, it affects Tarasim Mishpacha. Why delay going to the mikvah for no reason. If you have the ability, if you see the doctor and you fix the issue, you're not going to have the Agbas Nefesh. And of course, very, very important, 
as was mentioned in the first class, any time going for any procedure, it's very important ahead of time to know the name of the procedure, what the doctor is doing, how deep, how far they're going, what kind of tool they're using. Get this information in advance. If the doctor sees blood, make sure, first of all, if they see it, they have to say it. They don't have to look for it necessarily, but if they see, they do have to say. Once you're still in the doctor's office, ask on the spot, where is it coming from? Is it a scratch? Did you, 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 did you cut something as you were inserting the tool? Is it coming from the uterus? Do you know, is there any way to even know? Sometimes the answer is, I have no idea. I see blood and I have no clue where it's from. These are all very important factors. And just like you take care of things medically, it's also important to ensure the same way you take care of things halachically, to do your due diligence in advance, to speak with the Rav before going to the procedure. Many times you get a phone call after. The doctor told me, told me I saw blood. And I can't reach the doctor. I don't even know what the procedure was. Sometimes there's nothing you can do. You have to wait a week until the doctor's back or until you can access the doctor. So it's very important, just like medically, to be responsible. Also, in halacha, it's very important to be on top of it and not let things go. So I will say it's, it, is, it is special and unique to be able to be in an in a environment like this where, first of all, people are taking the time, effort, and energy, and I, and I appreciate the organization's um, the Motherhood Initiative and Mikva.org for, for, for organizing and putting these things together because, like I said, uh, there's nothing that breaks my heart more than people who suffer for no reason. Uh, and, uh, and, and I see it time and time again. And for me, uh, the ability for us to get better education, I said this last time also, um, everybody who is here tonight, everybody who will listen to this on the podcast, uh, you're now the ambassadors to your friends and to your family to help them be able to find what they need and to be able to get the services and get things that they need if, should, they, should they need those things. I also think it's very, very special to be able to have a Rav who's able to, to discuss with these issues because I can tell you that the, me personally, the pa number of patients I've had who have had issues, and like I mentioned about the one who, who went for an extended period of time before they, they came for help, that uh, the Rav can be in a wonderful resource uh, in being able to discuss things and be able to help things. And I tell my patients all the time, I am not a Rav. I do not Paskin. I'm just a simple doctor. Um, but I also say that if need be, I'm happy to speak with the Rav if there's a concern, if people have issues that they think they're not sure what to say. I'm always happy, and most doctors will be more than happy to speak to the Rav if there's a, if there's a Shiler, if there's a circumstance. But for me, the most important thing is I want people to, to not suffer. I want people to make sure that you take care of issues if there are problems. Um, and if there's things that we can help, I'm happy to help get people to the right resources to be able to help them so that they can get what they need uh, for themselves. So thank you. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, giving us the opportunity to present. Big thank you to Dr. Chernoff and Rabbi Kasima for this incredible class. Join us next week for the final episode of this series, which focuses on general gynecology and when to see a doctor.